I'm back with a very special guest. Uh, I'll just read a couple of lines because he really needs no introduction, but uh, I'm going to introduce him anyway. My friend David Suisse is president of the Tribe Media Jewish Journal, where he has been writing a weekly column on the Jewish world since 2006. In 2015, he was awarded first prize for editorial excellence by the American Jewish Press Association. Prior to Tribe Media, David was founder and CEO of Suisa Miller Advertising, a marketing firm named Agency of the Year by USA Today. He sold his company in 2006 to devote himself full-time to his first passion, Israel and the Jewish world. And I am thrilled, David, that you agreed to join me. How are you, my friend? Thank God I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Mike. Thank you, thank you. Uh, obviously, we are uh, in August now, uh, in the middle of this pandemic, which has been around the world now for like half a year. Uh, we're in Los Angeles, and uh, how are you coping? It's a mixed bag. There's uh, darkness and light, dancing together, and I go back and forth. I see the devastation throughout the country and the world. Over 150,000 people died. I see millions and millions of people that have lost their livelihood. And at the same time, I, I see that my situation personally is good, but I try not to close my eyes to the pain that's happening around the world. Um, and so it's a really mixed bag. It's almost a schizophrenic situation where I don't want to allow myself to be too happy and comfortable uh, in my own life, where I get to do the job I love all day long. I get to be with my daughters, and I get to take my two walks a day in this beautiful weather. I try not to let that dominate my life. I try to constantly remind myself that there's an enormous amount of pain out there. There's also the pain of uncertainty that uh, so many of us don't know. I have friends of mine who lost their businesses, who lost their jobs, other friends who were in the ICU. So it's really uh, unlike anything I've ever experienced, Mike. Well, I, you know, I think that uh, so many of us uh, can just identify exactly with what you just said. Uh, certainly, I feel that we are blessed. We are the lucky ones when I see the, the pain and tragedy that's going on around us, and not only in the United States, around the world. And it's, you know, I kind of think of it as a biblical plague that's just descended upon us. It's, it's, like, it's like biblical. I mean, uh, it, I think back six months ago, if you had told me that we would be talking about this now and be living in this kind of twilight zone, uh, I'd say, you know, it's a bad dream. But six months later, and uh, life uh, will never be the same. Uh, and so, you know, I, I try and do what I can uh, to try and be helpful to others uh, in any way I can. I'm starting, you know, I started this YouTube channel just to be able to, to speak and meet and schmooze with my friends because I can't, we can't meet. I mean, we can't get together. So this was uh, something that I decided to do. I'm going to be doing this now uh, with my friends in Israel. And we're going to be doing this uh, in order to help 
the uh, the myriad of artists and entertainers and actors and producers and directors in my industry in Israel that um, some of them, unfortunately, and some of them are major, major stars in Israel that have nothing to eat. I mean, it's gotten really that bad. So I'm going to try and help uh, in that way. But um, yeah, we are, uh, we have to get used to a new, uh, a new reality. And uh, it's going it's to take a while. Uh, and I think it's, it's one of the deepest human instincts, Mike, is to figure out what to do. Uh, as human beings, the survival instinct is the deepest gene we have. And no matter how horrible things get, we must survive in the uh, concentration camps. There were Jews that were trying to celebrate Pesach in the concentration camp that were trying to keep their humanity. We're going through an extremely primitive moment in human history right now where we are stopped, blocked from hugging our friends. I can't have coffee with you right now and hug you like we always do every time I see you. I can't do that. So they've taken one of the most essential aspects of humanity, which is this ability to get together with other human beings, and they have wrenched that away from us. It's as big a challenge to our humanity as I've ever seen. And at the same time, we fight back. What you're doing right now to help the entertainers in Israel is a sign of deep, deep humanity, which is I cannot sit here and wallow in negativity and darkness and despair. I cannot. That's not the human way. I spoke on my podcast this week on the, if I had to pick one word to describe the Jewish experience, I would use the word resiliency. No matter what has happened in our long, long history, whether a temple got destroyed or whether it was pogroms or whether the Crusades or the Holocaust, for some reason, we always were able to stand back up. Last Thursday was the darkest day of the Jewish year. It's Tisha B'Av, when we commemorate the horrors, the tragedies, and the destruction of our history. And then look at what happened, Mike. Six days later, it was Tu B'Av. It was the day of love. Love, the day of love. Yeah. The day of love, and love represents creation. There's nothing higher than love and creation. We go from the darkness of destruction, commemorating destruction, to the light of celebrating love and creation in six days, right? And in between, there's Shabbat. Shabbat, which is the, the holy moment of the week that enables us to reconnect with our humanity. So those three events, for me, represent Jewish resiliency, where we, we have the ability not to whitewash darkness, not to sugarcoat it and not to ignore it. We face it head on. We even sit down at Tisha B'Av in our morning, but we also don't allow it to devastate us and to uh, paralyze us. And after we sit down for Tisha B'Av, we stand up again and we stand up and go through Shabbat. So by the time we get to Tu B'Av, we've earned the right to celebrate love. Those three moments for me represent Jewish resiliency. And the fact that what has sustained and characterized our people throughout the millennia, the fact that we, we can cry and laugh at the same time. Jewish humor, you know, even in the darkest days, even in the concentration camps, there were always, there was always some 
form of uh, humor to lighten the the darkness, and uh, we're able to we're able to laugh. It's 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 what sustained us for so many. I have a friend who is a hundred years old now. She is a survivor of the camps and of the death marches. And she told me when I call her once in a while, she says, oh, Michael, this is nothing compared to what we survived. So we'll get, you know, we, we will overcome this as well. But it's, you know, uh, it's something that reminds me, you know, we're talking about this virus and I wanted to discuss it with you just a little bit, but before I do, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, since we're schmoozing as friends, y your background, you were born in Morocco, right? I was born in a in little Morocco. village outside of Casablanca called uh, Bereshid. Um, I, it was an Arab village with a few Jews. My father was, you know, promoted to run a school there. And we moved to Canada in the mid-60s. I was eight years old. And, you know, we went basically from the Mediterranean to the North Pole. It was an incredible culture shock, especially for my parents. Um, it was a, you know, a, a sun culture to a Nordic culture. And, and that's why I grew up in Canada and graduated from McGill University. My sister moved out to California. She married a guy who lived out here and she was my best friend in the world. I followed her and I've been here for, you know, since the early eighties. I'm an LA boy now, Mike. <laughs> Because you know it's usually the other way around. You interview other people, and and you don't know I do. about you. So I'm I'm turning it around. Uh, you know, we're talking about a time now also that is uh, very crucial, uh, and it's it's happening more and more. Uh, and I'm not talking about the coronavirus. I'm talking about a different virus called anti-Semitism. I call it a virus, and it's a virus that's been around for longer than the corona, and so far nobody's found a vaccine for it, but it keeps rearing its ugly head, and we are seeing this, you know, kind of uh, happening now again uh, more than we expected. Uh, you know, I, I heard your, your, one of your podcasts recently, and your lovely daughter Shani said something that really struck me. Uh, she said, you know, it's hard for me to accept that people hate you because you're Jewish. How old is Shani? She's 26. And yet this is something that is with her on a, you know, on a constant basis. Why should that be? after 2000 years, David, what, what's going on? Well, it's one of the toughest things I have to deal with, Mike, is uh, anti-Semitism, and I'll tell you why. Because it's, it's very complicated, because I have a bias. As a publisher, I know that if I put anti-Semitism in the headlines, I'm gonna get a lot more views and a lot more viewers. It's just the reality, right? That people have a tendency to look for trouble. That comes back to the days when, you know, where the the human brain is wired to protect itself. So when the, the 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 tiger that comes to attack you is more important than you picking the beautiful berry in the fields. So we're always going to have that bias of looking for trouble, and God knows the Jews have that bias. Social media has made this virus of anti-Semitism even more uh, prevalent. So 
I'm dealing with that. So on the one hand, I want to cover the Jew hatred that is, that is there. And on the other hand, I want to make sure I don't exploit fear and I don't just spread hysteria. I want to create this kind of nice balance, one of the toughest parts of my job, because uh, we can't forget that America has been the most welcoming country outside of Israel, you know, for the Jews. You spoke about entertainers. And I, I have a theory that the American Jews who combated anti-Semitism the most were the comedians. There's nothing like making somebody laugh to gain their their affection you know if i'm a lawyer i'm a doctor i'm a social activist i earn your respect but if i make you laugh i earn your affection and if you go back 100 years god knows i've read books on this hundreds and hundreds of jewish comics from the turn of the century with george burns hundreds of them. and there were so many books on this that fascinate me i've actually said this and uh, to mark schiff who sent it to seinfeld I've written columns on this. I have an incredible attachment to Jewish comedians. And in a certain way, the way they have fought anti-Semitism is not by complaining about it. They fought anti-Semitism by building a kind of pro-Semitism, which is, look, we're able to make fun of ourselves, right? We made America laugh for decade after decade. And you know them as well as, well as I do. So on the one hand, yes, I do want to fight anti-Semitism. I do want to support my daughter. We should condemn the anti-Semites, the Farrakhans, and all of it. And whether it's from the right or whether it's from the left. But at the same time, I also think we have an obligation to promote pro-Semitism as well. You mentioned the word vaccine, and I'm glad you did, because I'm working on a piece that says there is no cure for anti-Semitism. But there may be a vaccine. And the vaccine for me is to reinforce my pride in my Jewish identity and my knowledge of my Jewish story. And I just think for me, that's as important as actually condemning the anti-Semites. We need to do both. And I think what happens in our world today, we have a tendency to just do just one rather than both. So we, we call out, we condemn, and, and it's not enough. We also need to build pro-Semitism. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, uh, the great comedians and uh, the Jewish comedians uh, because it was a different era and I think they came from a different direction. They came for, uh, from more from a, uh, a humble uh, direction and their, uh, their, their um, meaning was a positive one. But I think we are now encountering, like we did just recently, some of our own Jewish comedians who, uh, for one reason or another, uh, are being irresponsible uh, out of uh, ignorance, basically, uh, and doing damage uh, with their celebrity. Uh, just to mention, uh, uh, as you know, about a week ago, Seth Rogen, and that uh, uh, story, um, the, uh, the journalist Peter Baynard, uh, you know, sometimes our own people are our worst enemies. Uh, but then again, you have people like uh, Brett Stevens uh, that balances out a little bit 
Uh, I don't want to go into all that now. But the bottom line is I will never forget uh, there's one simple, uh, uh, one simple thought that we all have to remember uh, when we're talking about uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, which is basically the same thing, just you know, concealed in a different way. Uh, I was part of the first March of the Living in 1988 when we uh, first went to Poland, to Auschwitz, and then we marched across the bridge to Birkenau. It was the first one, and I was fortunate to be there. And uh, we were standing uh, by the crematoria, and um, so many leaders were there. Uh, Rabbi Lau was, of course, there. And uh, Bibi arrived uh, at, the, uh, at the scene. He flew in especially, and he said something that will always remain with me, that we have a message there's a message that comes out of this spot, holy spot where we're standing, that a defenseless Jew is a dead Jew. It's as simple as that. And that's always, you know, when people talk to me about, you know, complain about all these uh, uh, stories that they've heard, and it's out of ignorance because they don't know what they're talking about. You have to remember that I, as a Jew, as a Zionist, as an Israeli American, that's my ultimate thought. We cannot ever be defenseless anymore. And that's, that's the message for me of Israel. You know, Mike, you, you are in that category of my friends that I adore because you're the, uh, the entertainers and you love regardless of politics. What I love about entertainers, you don't get into politics. You have pure love. Your connection with Israel, with the Jewish people, it's just pure. You understand this politics in life. Sometimes it goes here, sometimes it goes there. But your love is independent. Here in America, all right, we become very, very comfortable. All right. And when, when you get comfortable, you have the luxury. And one of those luxuries is to criticize, right? So it's become a real big Jewish value. So the idea is I'm a Jew, I'm pro-Israel. But I have the right and the obligation to criticize Israel because Israel is the state of all the Jewish people in the world. So go with that starting point. I think the real problem happens because we went from tough love to love tough. All right. Here's tough love. Your kid makes a mistake in school, a bad mistake. So he comes home and now you have to reprimand him. So you tell him, look, it was really wrong what you did, my son really wrong and you shouldn't blah 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 right but you know where you end it mike you end it with love you said it was wrong but i want you to know i love you i love you you end with love imagine if you know i love you son but what you did was really wrong and you end up on the on the dark point and i think in america the criticism is very much in the love tough part it's not they call it tough love but it's not it's love tough which is, yes, Israel has a lot of good things with startup nation and, and they have a lot of problems with terrorism and the neighborhood that they have, but, and whatever comes after but is what somebody really wants to say, but it is horrible the way they're treating the Palestinians. It is horrible that they're violating the values of the Declaration of Independence. And what somebody says, you know, when somebody asks you, can I please borrow some money? A good friend of yours. And the guy says, well, you know, I would love to. You're my best friend. I adore you. There's nothing I would like more. You're not really listening. 
because you're waiting for the but. And he says, but I really can't do it right now. Whatever comes after but is what really matters. And in America, it's what comes and what comes after the but is Israel is a big, bad country that makes an enormous amount of mistakes. It's not, you don't end on love. When you talk about Peter Beinart and the classic Israel critics that we see, they end on the tough part. They don't end on the love. So when they tell me how much they love Israel, I, you know, I say, wow, that kind of love, you know, it's not really tough love. And, and this is what's happened now. Criticism of Israel has become almost fetishized where it's the only thing that you, it's your whole relationship with Israel is based around criticism. And the idea of love that you and I share is seen as an unsophisticated, um, unacademic, uninteresting, boring kind of idea. Yes, yeah, let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, of course I love Israel. But, and this is a really important distinction. There are the greatest writers for me, they don't do but, they do and. Mika Goodman, Yossi Klein Alivi. They say, you know, Israel makes mistakes and I love Israel. Israel has this challenge and this. It's and, not but. Those are the real thinkers. I have a lot of respect for the writers who come out of Israel because they feel the consequences of all these decisions. And it's so easy for me, you know, to, to sit here in Beverly Hills or Beverly Wood and just tell Israelis what I think is best for them. In Israel, you know what a safe space is in Israel? A safe space is a room with really, really thick concrete. In America, a safe space in a university is a little room where you don't have to listen to this little piece by Mark Twain because you feel endangered by this Shakespeare play or by this little phrase and this microaggression shrivels you into fragility and then you're looking for safe space. In Israel, they have a real safe space. I don't know one American, Mike, not one. I've never met an American who had 12 seconds to run into a bomb shelter, not one. And when you have that kind of comfort, it's so easy to throw... To, to, to criticize and to tell Israelis who do go to bomb shelters what is best for them. And that's why that piece by Brett Stevens was brilliant. I know what you're referring to is yeah. absolutely brilliant. And I also tell some of my friends that don't know because, you know, the percentage of American Jews that have actually visited Israel is so small. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what exactly what it is, but it's small that have actually experienced the country, have been there. But I always ask my friends, okay, what do you think would be, we would be today if there was no Israel? Imagine today, okay, 1948 didn't happen. What, what do you think we'd be, what situation we'd be today, the Jewish people, if there was no Israel? You know, imagine that. It's hard to imagine, my friend. It's hard to imagine. I think, you know, we got... We, we fell into a bad situation in the past few years. America used to be a country where being successful was really valued. And we're living at a time right now where the heroes are victims. The heroes are the powerless and the victims. And Israel is not powerless. Israel is not a victim. Israel is really, really successful. And it's really strong. And those are not the popular people these days. You know, and I, I, I think the, the Israelis made a deal with the world. The world told Israel, including the mainstream media, if only a few hundred of you would die, 
when those bombs fell. Do you all have to jump into bomb shelters? None of you die when all those bombs fall. If only we had a few hundred deaths, we'd start to like you more. And you know what the Israelis said back? They gave him the middle finger. They said, no thanks, no deal. If us dying is the price to pay for you loving us, there's no deal. So we have to, in a way, it's kind of the price to pay for success is the fact that, you know, we're not going to be, um, we're not, we're not going to be the, the lovey doveys that we were. Remember before 67, we're the, the miracle country. Remember we were the underdogs. We were David to Goliath after the six day war of 67, we were celebrated, you know, and then all of a sudden we decided Israel had to defend itself against the enormous amount of enemies surrounding it. And we became stronger, we became more successful. And the, the perception is that we're a Western country that's white, we're not white. When you say people going to Israel, there's a hundred different nationalities in the IDF. Israel is a multi-ethnic society, but we have, we're paying the price for our success. And you know, if you ask me, if I had to pick, do I wanna be on the side of Israel? Or do I want to be a permanent victim that sleeps in a tent for three generations and eats hummus? I'll take Israel. I'll take Tel Aviv, the greatest city on the planet. Look, you know, I, I as a young man, I was in the Six Day War. And we always said afterwards, oh, we were all loved when we were the victims. We were the weak, you know, Israeli victims and everybody loved us. I'd rather be hated and not be a victim anymore. You know, This is exactly what is happening right now. That's it's it. It's exactly what is happening. It's, it's, it's kind of a somewhat of a sobering reality, but at the same time, and I, and I tell my kids that so much of Jew hatred and Jew hatred never goes away. It comes, it ebbs and flows over the centuries. There are worse moments, bad moments, and it comes under any circumstance whatsoever. It comes when we're strong, when we're weak. It comes when we're left, when we're right. It comes when we're rich, when we're poor, you name it. It always finds a way to, to appear. But what I do tell my kids is that so much of Jew hatred has to do with envy. And we have to face the fact that Jews, generally speaking, have been quite successful in America. And when you're successful, especially at a time when there's economic devastation, we're going to be vulnerable to this kind of envy that can easily translate into Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. You know, you just gave me a great segue because I want to recommend to you, if you haven't read it yet, and to my friends out there, I just finished reading the latest book by a dear friend of mine, Daniel Silva. Mm. And Daniel is a New York Times bestseller. He's written, this is, I think, his 20th or his 22nd uh, number one New York Times bestseller, and it's called The Order. And it's dealing with much of what we were discussing right now, especially the idea of Jew hatred. And I don't want to give away the plot, but among, have you read it? Uh, no, I haven't. I've heard of it. I haven't. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to read you a little quote from the book because he deals with uh, one of the uh, historic uh, reasons for anti-Semitism and Jew hatred, and um, among them are the Gospels. And he's talking in the book to a professor of ancient uh, you know, Roman history, and he's talking about the Gospel of Matthew. 
And uh, we're going back to uh, something that was written many years after uh, the crucifixion, uh, probably about 90 years uh, into the uh, CE, the, our century. Uh, and he says that in the Gospel of Matthew, quote, Pilate, the ruthless Roman prefect, washes his hands in front of the Jewish crowd gathered on the great pavement and declares himself innocent of Christ's blood, to which the crowd replies, quote, his blood shall be on us and our children. It is the most consequential line of dialogue ever composed. 2,000 years of persecution and slaughter of Jews at the hands of Christians can be traced back to those nine terrible words. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I'm not gonna answer that, sorry about that. Uh, that is, sorry. I apologize, <laughs> that was a call from Israel. And then uh, he asks, so why did, he, why did they do that? Because that historically is incorrect. It would never have happened that way. And the reason is because at that time, there was a danger that Christianity that was just nascent, just being born, would have gone back into the Jewish faith, that that would, would have uh, not allowed the advancement of the new religion. And so they took the uh, onus uh, off the Romans and put it on the Jews. And for 2000 years, unfortunately, that's what we have been suffering up till now. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. And I really um, recommend it to people to read and get another aspect of what we, what we have been suffering for 2000 years. The re, the, the religious reason behind it. What's really interesting, Mike, is that the exact opposite happened. Christianity mushroomed and expanded exponentially into the millions and millions that now you have 2 billion Christians. So the exact opposite happened. Christianity became one of the most successful religions in human history. So that the animosity that started in those nine words evolved, morphed into a different type of animosity, which is a lot more lethal, which is the animosity, how dare you stick to your guns? How dare you? Christianity is the new Judaism. And by you staying alive, by you surviving, you are a constant reminder that maybe we're wrong. And that is incredibly threatening. The Jews were the first ones to speak to God. We were at Sinai, and everyone knows that, 3,300 years ago. So, you know, 1,300 years later, Christianity comes along, and they say, well, you know, Paul wrote that famous letter, we don't really need the laws, and this is the new Judaism, and eventually became Christianity. But you had these thick-necked, these, you know, uh, these really stubborn Jews, you know, in the temple that said, we're sticking by our guns. We're sticking by the Torah. We're sticking by the mitzvot and the 613 commandments. That was the most threatening thing we did to the Christians. And then 700 years later, then the third book shows up, which is the Quran and Islam. So Christians were the second, and then Korans were the, 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 the Muslims were the third, and they got rid of the first two books completely. So they're also kind of insecure 
but Jews don't have any of that insecurity because we were the first ones to speak to God and they know that. So we were always at the mercy of insecure religions who always feel threatened by our very existence. So it's like, how dare you not join the new Judaism was number one. Number two, uh, when Islam was born, it was supposed to replace both books, Judaism and Christianity. So we're doomed to a, a situation where, you know, we, we threaten people by our mere existence. Now, of course, thank God, you know, the Enlightenment showed up and we're now in the modern era where nobody is saying, how dare you, you know, stay Jew. Although there are some, you know, who are obsessed with, you know, converting us. It's still there, those radical elements. But Judaism is now a, a mainstream, well-accepted uh, religion. Uh, but that is the beginning of centuries and centuries and centuries of uh, Jew hatred from the Christians. And that's why anytime we had suffering, they would use it as proof that God is punishing us because we didn't move over. Right? So there was a, a almost kind of a, uh, an insidious uh, correlation that was made between our suffering and claims to godly wishes. But in the end, we prevailed, uh, Mike. And I think the point I made earlier on resiliency, this is part of our journey, is part of our resiliency is being able to take those knocks and never, ever despair. But, you know, it brings home to me so much, uh, you know, importantly, the, the importance of words, that words matter. And that's what you do so importantly and so brilliantly with the Jewish Journal and your writings, that those nine words have haunted us. You know, mm -hmm. our suffering for 2,000 years can be traced back to nine words. Uh, and words uh, are important. So when people talk and write, they have to remember there's all oh, forget it. You know, he didn't mean what he said. That's not true. Every word counts. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, so grateful for the words that you write every week. And uh, and please uh, continue doing it because we need you more than ever. And when you say you can't hug me, I'd love to hug you. But my great frustration <laughs> that I can't hug my grandkids. Oh that my God! I have a grandson, Mike. Was born in Israel. Uh, he's he's three months. Uh, you believe it? He's in Sfat. My first grandchild is a grandson. Was born in Israel, and he's three three and a half months. And you see him via Zoom every day. Every day I get pictures and films, and uh, God bless him. And I can't wait to. Pick I know. Him up. What's his name? Yitzchak Rachamim. Yitzchak Rachamim. <laughs> is that beautiful? Uh, well, the Rachamim is the most important part of that. A Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. It, it, you know, it's been such a delight, David. I, you know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. So um, I'll be uh, putting this up on my channel. Uh, the channel is open to everyone. It's not a commercial channel by any means. I just want people to join us and all my friends and, and listen to our chats and our schmoozes. Uh, because uh, until this uh, uh, pandemic is over, uh, this is, you know, unfortunately the media that we have to use. And I love what you're doing, Mike. I love what you're doing. I was speaking to a friend of mine. Her father passed away and she was devastated because she couldn't have a regular funeral where you get the solace and the comfort of hundreds of people. 
coming to hug you and then you know a week of shivas with so many so many people and touch and physical presence is inherent to the mourning experience and the grieving and she was devastated at the fact that it wasn't going to happen and you know what happened something extraordinary happened she was pleasantly surprised that with the zoom experience of the funeral and the memorializing hundreds of people from around the world were able to participate and i and i realized that even in this time of crisis when all we have is what you and i have right now which is zoom i think it almost focuses on the essential of our humanity which is this is our humanity is coming across right now which is the essence and this is what she felt she felt that human love and humanity came through despite the fact that they were not physically present ironically sometimes tragedy also is accompanied by some something positive comes out even out of the worst tragedies so, we're making a greater effort yeah. right now we're making a greater effort to reach out maybe we would not have had this conversation today had it not been for the disaster that uh, and the calamity that we're going through i think if i had to name one one idea uh since i started my podcast 75 episodes ago four months ago the one idea that stuck with me the longest is it was from rabbi leader in LA and he said if you have to go through hell don't come out of it empty-handed hmm. and, and we're going through a type of hell right now a really dark tunnel and let's see if we can come out of this dark tunnel as a better father a better husband a better friend a better Jew a better son a better neighbor that for me uplifts me uh, that's wonderful that's wonderful that's our challenge and and for me it's also in uh, you know i i always look for an incentive now that we're you know it's been six months we're not working there's no you know oh. no work for us us in the entertainment industry it's really tragic but uh i you know i look for an incentive to get up in the morning because otherwise you know why bother uh, mm -hmm. and we always need to look for that incentive you know that's that's what keeps us going uh, David, please, you know, share this. I'd, lo I'd love people, to, you know, as many people as can watch the, uh, the channel. I'm going to be doing one for my friends in Israel and that uh, people will have to donate in, in order to see that so that it will benefit the, uh, the people in the uh, entertainment industry in Israel. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My well, pleasure. Well, before we go, I always ask my friends, uh, if I were to ask you for one individual who inspired your life, I'd like to know who that would be. Wow. Well, he, he died many, many, many years ago, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in love with Abraham Lincoln for decades and decades. I read everything I can about him. Uh, he suffered so much. He married a woman he didn't love. He lost two children. He... He loved humanity, he loved America, and he had to go through, he had to see 600,000 of his fellow countrymen die through the war. He was able to transcend himself for some greater need. And it's like he saw 200 years down the road, I don't want to leave a country where you have 50 countries warring against each other. I want to leave a united country without slavery. I just think he's, he's, 
is top of my list, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And I leave you again, my friends, with my motto. Carpe diem. Excuse the day. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike. I enjoy doing this. Thank you. Thank you David. Shalom. God bless. Shalom. Bye-bye.